My guest this week is currently working on one of my favorite television shows. In his career, he has worked on many extremely popular comedy institutions, from UCB to Strangers with Candy to the TV Funhouse segments on Saturday Night Live. In 2003, he was hired as a regular writer for The Daily Show, where he stayed for five years. The last 11 he has spent in the writer's room of the hilarious Bob's Burgers. I'm glad I get to talk to and not have to carry his Emmys, Mr. Scott Jacobson. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. Thank you for having me on. Oh, absolutely. The question I ask everybody is, who are your early influences? Who are the first people that you saw as funny? I My earliest was um, probably, I, I really loved David Letterman, like a lot of... Uh, comedy writers my age and it was uh, exciting because he was on really late at night just late enough that it seemed impossible to stay up that late when i was a, a little kid um and i remember finding there was a book a late night with david letterman book that you could find um in a lot of in a lot of cutout bins and library sales and uh i i had a couple copies because whenever i went to a library sale they would have one and uh that was kind of my b- biggest connection to the letterman show um and I would mostly just read the book and imagine what the show was, but sometimes I'd stay up. And that's also when I first saw Chris Elliott, who was another major uh, early influence. And uh, most of the best comedy was stuff that was late at night, like Saturday Night Live to me was very exciting. Um, when I was young, it was, well, very young. It was like the, um, the Eddie Murphy years, but I kind of really started to appreciate it when it was like Dana Carvey and Phil Hartman and uh, Nora Dunn and all those folks. Um, those were the shows that made me first want to write comedy. Um, and then, of course, when Comedy Central came out, uh, which it was called Comedy Channel in the beginning, I got exposed to a million different um, funny shows that I hadn't known about. A lot of British stuff like Black Adder and The Young Ones and, um, and tons and tons of stand-ups, mostly from the 80s. They would just run clips of uh, 80s stand-ups for like 24 hours a day, and uh, you get the good and the bad. But um, yeah, th- those were those were the biggies. By the time you were in high school, you already knew what you wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to do, but it was, um, you know, it wasn't something that I told people about. Um, because I lived in North Carolina and uh, Fayetteville, which is... It's not a entertainment mecca. It's connected to a army base, and so there's, um, you know, in terms of um, jobs there, you could either work for the military or uh, work for one of the many businesses that cater to active duty military, which are mostly, you know, there are a lot of pawn shops and a lot of strip clubs. It was a bit of a bleak place, and um, I just I would fantasize a lot about New York. But I didn't know for sure if I could ever move there. And so if people ask me what I wanted to do, I usually uh, said I wanted to be like an English professor. And when you were in high school, you had a magazine called the Mercury Strain Test? Yeah, well, that was um, something I did with my friend Barry when I was in high school. That was one of the first, um, my first forays into writing um, and showing people the writing. And it was kind of, uh, it it gave me the bug a little bit and uh, it was very fun collaborating with him with this guy, Barry Summerlin, who's not a comedy writer now, but he's a very funny guy. And uh, we, um, yeah, it was, it was a very classic 1990s zine with a lot of just like, um, you know, pictures, like collages made of pictures that we cut out of magazines and uh, 
kind of a spiky, like, uh, you know, indie rock attitude <laughs> and really just like, um, just bratty, uh, teenage comedy, kind of sneering teenage comedy. I, I have no, I haven't seen a copy in many years. I have no idea what it's like. My, my Twitter handle though, is still strain test. And you went to UNC Chapel Hill. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And, uh, I'll just kind of by default because a lot of people from my my uh, high school went to UNC and uh, I just kind of blindly followed them, but it was a, uh, it was a good school. I don't re- regret it at all. And you know, there was a lot going on and a lot of really smart people in Chapel Hill. Yeah, at that time, my cousin was at Duke and his girlfriend was at Chapel Hill, which is a, a no, no, but. Oh no, that must've been, yeah. caused some friction. I would imagine. You were on the radio station. Yeah, I was on the radio station. You know, I, I was kind of, Still, it was still the years of um, not really admitting what I wanted to do, but kind of sniffing around it. And so, whenever there's anything media related, I would I would jump into it. I worked for the TV station, the newspaper, and the radio station. And uh, I tried to to do funny stuff in each, least of all the radio station, because I'm also very into music. And so, I I just kind of uh, scratched that itch there. But um, but yeah, a lot of people. You know, I'm a big fan of funny radio. I just, uh, you know, I was mostly on very late at night and um, all by myself, and I didn't know how to make that funny. I was no Gene Shepherd. Okay. And then you left college in 1999, and you went to New York, and you were an intern at the UCB? Yeah, I went to New York. I was an intern for the Howard Stern Show. That was the job I got. And, um, and I was... I had a rare moment of kind of uh, incisive thinking when I was uh, at the Stern show and I realized that I was not really going to get a job out of that. I loved working there because um, it wasn't my sensibility really. And I regretted that, you know, I I had applied for two different um, internships, one at Stern and one at the UCB TV show. But I took the, I got both of them, but I took the Stern one because it uh, was just kind of a sexier gig. It's it seemed like stepping into a sitcom because they um, they had a show on E that was all like behind the scenes of the show. So you're just basically working alongside characters from this show that you've been watching, um, and that appealed. But then I got there and I realized this is not me really. It, it's little. I mean, I don't want to work in radio for one thing. And while I appreciate Howard Stern, like the sensibility isn't quite mine. And I didn't think I was going to get hired to write there. So I, um, I really regretted that I hadn't taken the UCB job. And this is one of those bizarre things that kind of changed the course of my career. But um, my dad, who is a dentist at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Durham, North Carolina, um, happened to know the father of a VP at Comedy Central. He played golf with the father of a VP at Comedy Central. And my dad, who has zero showbiz connections, said, I'll put in a word for you with him. And so next thing I knew, I got a call from Tony Fox, who's a, who was a VP at Comedy Central, um, asking if I still wanted that internship at UCB. And uh, I said, yeah. And uh, it was that from there, I met uh, my writing partner um, for many years, uh, this guy, Rich Blomquist. And we started working together. And we, we both got jobs on other Comedy Central shows. He worked for Rob Smigel. And uh, Rob Smigel had this uh, TV funhouse 
uh, show on Comedy Central for a while. And I worked for Strangers with Candy, uh, eventually as a writer's assistant. And uh, everything kind of went from there. I met at, right at Strangers with Candy. I met Stephen Colbert for the first time. Um, I, you know, I kept writing with Rich and we got hired on The Daily Show together. Uh, we got hired to write a bunch of stuff for um, Rob Smigel. And uh, yeah, and I kind of owe it all to my, my dentist dad. And Rob Smigel's dad is a dentist. That's right. We've talked about that. And uh, my friend Mike Sachs's dad was a dentist, too. Who I think you spoke to Mike not too long ago. Yes, I was going to bring up our bodies are junk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're one of the few people who has heard of it. Um, but it was that was really cool. Really, I'm, I'm, Mike is one of my um, closest comedy friends, and uh, I've, I've worked with him a lot over the years. I first came across his stuff um when i was temping back in new york before i ever got hired anywhere uh i was just a fan of the weird little comedy pieces he was putting online and i got in touch with him but um yeah that's a friendship that has endured for a couple decades now on the daily show what was your typical day like well the typical day started early it started at like nine um which is early for a, a comedy tv show and uh, we would go over the news of the day. Uh, there was a researcher there who was kind of this galaxy brain guy named Adam Chodakoff, who would watch everything very early in the morning, everything that was coming through over the wire services and read everything. And, um, and he helped to guide us towards what maybe some of our stories of the day would be, uh, along with the head writer and Litton's later years that when I was there, uh, John himself would, would have more of a hand in that. And, um, we would all kind of hang out and just hash out the stories of the day and pitch jokes. And, uh, in that morning meeting, the, uh, assignments for the day would kind of emerge. Like you would, um, you would see what the headlines were going to be. And, um, you would also see what the, um, the chats, you know, could be you know, based on, they would always be, you know, highly topical based on something that happened that day or the day before. And, uh, so then the assignments were kind of doled out and we would all go to our offices and write separately. Um, and you, like, if, if you were writing a headline, you would have to write, we'd use this like, uh, software that was actually, uh, used by news networks and, um, and it told you how many minutes you had written and, you know, if, if the, if your writing was read on the air. And so we were shooting for like two and a half to three minutes of material and you'd have like two hours to write it. And, um, and you'd write a full headline as though it was the thing that uh, John was going to read. You turn that in and then, um, uh, John and the head writer and executive producer, and then a rotating cast of writers would, would go in and uh, select the jokes for the day. And the head writer, along with another writer, uh, usually that was based on rotation too, would assemble the jokes into something resembling what John would say in the air. And then um, for the rest of the day, you would work on either evergreen pieces that would be like This Week in God with Ed Helms or, uh, you know, uh, back to the uh, Lewis Black segment. You know, you'd work on one of those or work on a chat or whatever else. And then there was rehearsal at, I believe it was five. And uh, after rehearsal, you there, there would be a little huddle with John and you would rewrite stuff on the fly. 
and uh, we'd also rewrite throughout the day. Like if um, if uh, there was a joke needed for one of the headlines, we'd kick it back to the writers. All the writers would get together, gather around a computer, and just kind of pitch jokes. And uh, that was it. It was a pretty um, pretty easy schedule as TV goes. You know, we would get in at nine, and we would be out of there by like six, six or seven. Did you have an incident where the whole story that you were working on changed during the course of the day? That would happen all the time. And it was, you know, it wasn't hard to, um, to change course. I, I think that, you know, especially with a team like that, you can, you can just sit down and, and collaborate in real time. And, uh, it, yeah, you, you, there's a steep learning curve for that kind of writing, but once you've got it, you've got it. Like to this day, I, I credit the fact that I can I can write anywhere, no matter what's going on, no matter how much obnoxious distraction is happening. I, I credit that to just my time at the Daily Show, or having to stay focused for those two hours, knowing that if I didn't turn in the you know, two and a half minutes, three minutes of material, I would feel like a slacker or you know worry about my job. <laughs> so, was there a particular guest that you wanted to meet, and did you ever do that? Walk into a walk into the makeup room or anything like that no you know it's strange it seems strange that the answer would be no although there was a interesting uh are you familiar with thomas pynchon the yeah. novelist um i lured him into the daily show once he's famously reclusive not a lot of existing photos of him even and um we were going to uh, do a, a concert celebrating the 10th anniversary of The Daily Show, and I was putting together a little program for it. And I wanted the other writers to submit pieces, and they're all on the theme of like uh, the fake history of The Daily Show, basically. And I wanted the other writers to submit pieces, but I also knew that um, they there was no money involved, so the writers weren't going to be falling all over themselves to submit something. Um, so I kind of had to lure them of course them because I wasn't going to give them money. And so I thought if I get somebody really impressive to write a forward, then um, maybe everyone will want to be a part of this. And so I just shot for the highest possible person I could think of. And that is super reclusive, doesn't do anything for anybody, novelist, like legendary novelist, Thomas Pynchon. And I, I figured out that his wife worked for a literary agency. I tracked down her email. I asked through her, and it just so happened that Pynchon's son liked The Daily Show very much. And he said he would do it, but uh, he wanted to come visit the, the, the show. And so I was like, absolutely. And uh, he came in, and this was the days before everyone had the, you know, a, a 50 megapixel uh, phone on their person at all times. So, you know, we were told, you know, no one can take photographs, but that would have meant, you know, bringing in an actual, like, 35 millimeter and uh, so he came in and I, I got to have a nice chat with him. And uh, we talked about Starship Troopers, which had come out recently and which he liked. And then he had, he wanted to stand in the studio but he had, for the taping with his son, but he had to be way back in the shadows and we had to uh, reassure him that the camera would never uh, pick him up. And so that was, that was definitely the coolest encounter I had there. How old was the son, the teenager? Yeah, the son was, I want to say, 13 or 14. You left The Daily Show in 2008? Yes, yeah. And to, to do a half-hour cartoon called Snake and Bake? Uh, no, it was, oh, pardon me for the yawn. 
um, podcast no-no. But it was, um, no, it was, uh, I'd been there for five years and I wanted to work in episodic TV. And um, the writer's strike had happened and it felt like it was a good time to leave. Uh, just, it was a natural uh, time because we hadn't been in the office for a while. And I just, I, I felt like if I don't do this now, I'll never do it. Uh, the pilot, that snake and bacon pilot was um, something separate. I wasn't, I wasn't hitching my wagon to that thinking that was going to be, um, it, it would have been a little bit foolish. Uh, it, but I, it was a fun thing to do. It was um, based on the uh, cartoons of this really brilliant cartoonist named Michael Kupperman. And uh, my old friend who I just who I mentioned is my former writer writing partner, Rich Blomquist, and I wrote that. And uh, Smigel was like an executive producer. And it was fun and wacky, but it didn't get didn't get picked up. And so, what did you? So you 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 wrote humor pieces? Yeah, I did a lot of I wrote a lot of pilots. I wrote a lot of humor pieces. I I start I start tried stand up. I just tried to kind of keep myself out there and keep busy. And um, a couple of years passed and not a lot was happening and I was running through my savings. Um, and uh, my agent told me that there was a new show called Bob's Burgers. And um, he wrongly told me, well, not wrongly, uh, he told me that it was the new show by a guy from King of the Hill, Jim Dotrieve. Jim Dotrieve was involved, but it was really, uh, you know, little, little did I know, but it was really uh, Lauren Bouchard's show and Nora Smith. Um, but I flew out to LA from New York, um, to interview for it because just based on the fact that I was a King of the Hill fan. And, um, when I got out there, I found out the truth and I found out the cast of the show and I was just, I knew that I had to work on it and, uh, they had read a pilot that I'd written and liked it. So I felt like I was coming in from a place where I could get the job. It was conceivable. You know, I followed up with Jim, who was the, the EP and showrunner probably too many times. I was as, as over eager as you could possibly be. Um, and, uh, it somehow worked out. You wrote a lot of episodes that when I was going over, I watched them, I watched them all again that, oh, cool. uh, are some of my favorite episodes. And, uh, um, oh, great. for example, uh, the mama pest hotel, when, uh, they have, when Tina has the fight with her mom, Oh. I'm glad you called that out. I really love that episode. It's a little controversial among fans because they think um, Linda's very annoying in that one. But uh, I think she's annoying, but at the same time, I feel for her. And uh, it, it is one of my personal favorites because it's just, I'm a, a parent now and uh, I kind of understand where Linda's coming from even more. Uh, there's that kind of terror that, you know, you, you, you know that your child has to get older and has to grow away from, apart from you. And, you know, and you're supposed to just let it happen and you do, but at the same time, I think it's okay to feel that anxiety. And that, that, that episode was just about saying, you know, it's okay to feel that anxiety. And what I like about Bob's Burgers is also what I liked about King of the Hill. There are human stories, even though they're cartoon characters, but there's real emotion in those stories, unlike other cartoons, I love The Simpsons, and they have—you're not going to see that stuff on Family Guy or no South Park. They do a different sort of thing, you know. I think maybe we unfairly we get compared to them unfairly, unfairly in both directions sometimes, just because we're in the same block of animation and they're both animated shows about families. But 
I mean, the Family Guy guys. A lot of people say that to me, like, um, you know, it's Family Guy doesn't do anything heartfelt, and it's just all mean spirited jokes. But at the same time, that's what Family Guy is. <laughs> that's what it was like pitched as. No, I, I love Family Guy. I think it's I think it's very funny as well. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really great. They're really great at what they do, and we just you know we're we're yeah, it's a, a character driven show, and it's it's really grounded in a in reality and emotion and uh, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite one of my favorite jokes is uh, when Bobby is the driver for and oh, yeah. the quilt the quilt thief yeah the queef yep <laughs> there you go I love that episode too uh, I can't take credit for putting quilt thief together uh, I think there was that was someone else and I can't remember who um, but I I love that episode uh, maybe it was Nora Smith Nora Smith comes up with a lot of the the best lines, in my opinion. I know people ask writers or television writers, where'd you come up with that idea? You probably get that a question a lot. But ambergris, I didn't even know what the hell that is. So how did you get that idea? Uh, that was that was just from reading articles, I think. That was just from, uh, it was a twist on just the kids who find treasure on the beach. And uh, it was an interesting sort of treasure and it kind of up our alley and that it was gross. You know, it's basically like, it's, it's not whale snot, but we, you know, we, you could kind of cheat and say it is. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it was, it was the idea that uh, we're always playing with Louise being very motivated by uh, money and she's oh she's kind of a wheeler dealer and what if she actually what if she got a hold of something that was worth real money and uh and what would that be in this little beach town and uh you know every once in a while a lump of this ambergris stuff uh washes up on the beach and uh you can make a lot of money off of it and we talked to you know a perfume maker who used it and uh it's you know as gross and, and disgusting as it is it's a rare find and yeah it just we took it from there and that's also the episode where um i think felix is introduced yeah uh yeah fish odor's brother a lot of your episodes have fish odor in them i did uh well he's very fun to write for i, I wrote the 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 biggest fish odor episode i wrote was odor games and um and that one, it was kind of inspired by the writer's strike and collective bargaining that I had experienced. And uh, yeah, it, that one is kind of a special one to me too. You're calling out uh, good ones. Um, yeah, and that was the first time I think I ever really got to write for him, for Kevin Klein. Uh, we all like love to do fish odor episodes you can't toss him in that frequently because he's kind of it's kind of like special um a little of fish odor i think would go a long way and if you saw him in every episode it would lose some of its specialness and so you really have to have a, a solid idea and a solid reason to bring him in um and those don't come along all that often for me at least well the gingerbread house episode is also really good well that was nora that was nora smith that's that's an amazing episode i love that one yeah, you've got to come up with something. I mean, that's just like, that was Nora asking what about like a cutthroat uh, competitive uh, gingerbread 
making contest where like the stakes the stakes where you could die <laughs> and the only part if you're taking the, making the stakes that high on bob's burgers um you're probably gonna use fish odor because fish odor is like so wacky and, and um, then he allows you to sort of warp the groundedness and reality of the world a little bit. Usually, it, you know, the, the show, like I said, is very grounded. But if fish odor is involved, you're, you're kind of you can you have a certain license to get a little wackier. So he would be like of the non Belchers, your favorite character to write for. And honestly, it's weird when you've lived as long as you have as long as we all have with these characters, I think you have a lot of affection for almost all of them. Um, like I love regular size Rudy. I was just going to say regular size Rudy. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm thinking of a regular size Rudy story now. I love, um, you know, I, I love Teddy. I love, I love Mort. Mort was my first episode, um, mm. weekend at Mort's. Uh, I really love them all. Uh, it's, it's, it sounds uh, ridiculous to say, or maybe like hard to believe, but, um, I remember very early on, I was just thinking about this today, uh, very early on in the show, Lauren was telling us um, about the show Bible, I think. In my memory, he was telling us about the show Bible. I don't think I ever read it, but he was just telling us about it. And he said something about the characters, and he said, uh, you know, I'm sure you don't love them yet, but I love them, and and pretty soon you're going to love them too. And at the time, I thought... I don't know if I'll ever love these characters. <laughs> I mean, I didn't really know them very well. And uh, and I was kind of projecting some of my own ideas uh, onto who they were. Like, I thought that, uh, I remember thinking early on that Tina was more of a nerd character. And um, she's not. She's not at all, really. She's not dumb, but she's not super smart. Um, she's more, you know, she leads with her heart. And um, she's very special and very particular. And I do love her now, but I, th- I don't think I did then. It, 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 it's, you know, it's going to be strange when I'm not writing for this show anymore to think about all the characters. Another one that you didn't write, but I, I, I really liked was the snowball fight with the um, softball team. Oh, yeah. The snowball fight episode. I love that one, too. That's, that's my friend Holly's, um, Holly Schlesinger. And she, the, my favorite part is, I think it's Louise guilting Teddy or kind of tricking Teddy into um, plowing the snow on the on the hill, you know, the night before. My daughter just had field day at her school. Uh, she's 10. They played Gaga Bowl. Oh, really? That's amazing. Uh, yeah, a lot of people thought that we made that up. I did too. Yeah, and um, I never played Gaga Ball when I was a kid. Um, I, my wife did, I think, at a Jewish camp. Because it was it was primarily a really popular game at Jewish um, like summer and day camps, and uh, yeah, that was another one that uh, it it's it kind of went in a direction that was it felt personal to me. I always felt like Gene in that episode, like uh, but it was dodgeball at my school, not uh, not Gaga ball. And I I initially pitched um, the the episode as being about dodgeball, but um, Lauren steered it towards Gaga Ball because his kids were playing it, and because there was that, there was a whole movie about dodgeball. <laughs> mm. I don't think the world needed any more dodgeball content. Yeah, that's why I like the episode too because Gene is whenever there's something that I don't like, but they say everybody loves. I I, I hate that. It just bothers. Yeah, me. yeah. It, it was. Um, it's a it's a a good message. I think 
because we're in a in a culture now where you know toxic positivity uh, is kind of a real thing and we sometimes forget that you know it's okay to not be super enthusiastic and positive all the time too i think that's a little bit of a subtext of that episode where did the character of jen the babysitter uh, make her first appearance because i try to watch the show sequentially because i'll admit that i didn't watch it until maybe four years ago so then now i have hulu and i'm watching it Where'd oh nice you... uh that was a character that i just kind of made up when i was writing two for tina um i just wanted a funny babysitter character and uh i remember just kind of it's always a shot in the dark when you introduce a character like that because you just kind of give them a little bit of a gimmick and hope that other people will like it often the those characters get altered but uh yeah this one kind of yeah I, she's just kind of a slow-witted not especially competent babysitter <laughs> and there's and i imagined that uh, wendy would play her because she does she sometimes did that voice for, for other characters just kind of just in the room um and some of there were she improved a lot of great stuff as Jen that kind of built the character more, like her habit of mispronouncing words and microwave and that sort of thing. And uh, it's a surprise, surprise to me that I'm still writing Jen into episodes all these years, all these years later. It definitely felt like uh, you know maybe maybe a one off. And you got to. Um make a vocal appearance on on the show um yes i did i was uh what was i oh, it was the food trucking episode i played an announcer who was a, a dj from the local npr radio station um and, and i'm totally blanking on the name paul blinkman and uh yeah we and I often joke about bringing Paul Blinkman back and pitch fake stories that are excuses for Paul Blinkman to return. But I don't think you'll ever hear from Paul Blinkman again. It's good to create a character. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, uh, Paul Blinkman did a lot with, with very little. I think he had like two lines, <laughs> but he'll live forever in my memory. Oh, I'm going to ask you about uh, TV Funhouse segments on Saturday Night Live for about, was it sure. about, about three seasons altogether. I would believe that. I don't know. I, I, we kind of did that sporadically. Um, the way Smigel works is he will just reach out out of the blue. He does to this day um, if he thinks that maybe you could help with something. Sometimes the, they're paid gigs, and sometimes he's just asking for help, and you do it because you know he's. He, there's there's really no one who loves comedy writers, and who is better to them, uh, more than uh, Smigel. And uh, so, yeah, he early on would get me and Rich to uh, pitch jokes for TV Funhouse cartoons and for Triumph the Insult Comic Dog appearances. And uh, the cartoons were the most fun to write for, of course, because then you get to see them on TV, well, usually. And um, yeah, I remember the first one I ever wrote for was uh, a parody of Peanuts Christmas where the kids do that do the handshaky thing by the the dinky christmas tree and turn it into a beautifully decorated seemingly more robust christmas tree and then they realize that they can just do that to anything in their lives if they stand around an old junker car and do this it turns into a you know a trans am um and it was pretty simple and it was just a matter of you know suggesting beats where they could do that 
but it was the most exciting thing in the world when I saw it there and my name was in the credits. So you would be credited on the cartoon. Your name wouldn't be like a guest writer or. No, I never wrote for SNL proper. I mean, those cartoons were on SNL, but uh, I was never in the room there. I never wrote sketches or anything like that. I knew, I knew that. I just want to know how you were credited. Um, when you did. Yeah, I was just credited within the cartoon and the credits. I, and I can't remember if it was like additional material or or what. You did an ex-presidents. I can't remember which ex-presidents. I think it was the last one, actually. All right. I, I'll take your word for it. I wish I could cite a joke or something that I wrote, but I honestly don't remember uh, a damn thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Fine. Big Whistly Gay Duo. Uh, I did not write. I don't think I ever wrote for one of those. No. I think maybe that's a mistake. Well, um, IMD make DB makes them sometimes. Yeah, they definitely do. I I, I mostly remember writing for um, one-off uh, cartoons, like not not the the big famous ones. I do think I wrote for an ex-president's once, but mostly it was. I did a couple Christmas ones. There was Christmas time for the Jews. Right, that's the big one. I was saving that one. Yeah, um, I got a, a couple jokes into that, and I was very happy because that one pops up again every year. There was one that never aired about um, what if Einstein had had large breasts. <laughs> I, can, I, I can see why maybe. In, you did a Michael Jackson cartoon. Yeah, that sounds right. I think I remember his. It was like his sidekick was Elephant Man's bones. Right. And uh, yeah, I I don't remember what I contributed to that, but I do remember working on it. Yeah. That, yeah, that, they did that three times. Uh, the Michael Jackson cartoon. You wrote, you wrote the th- for the third one. Okay, right. That sounds right. Yeah. Well, do you remember what jokes you got on Christmas time for the Jews? Because that's like a hysterical segment. Oh God, I've been asked this before, but I haven't. I honestly, I shouldn't. I shouldn't shoot off my mouth because I, I, I know that it's, it's. It sounds hard to believe, but I. It's so long ago at this point, you know, that I, I honestly don't remember. Um, I would have to watch, and even then, like I remember something about basketball players. Uh, never mind. I'm, I, I'm going to get into hot water because I'm going to claim something is mine that isn't mine. Um, it, that's how these things work a lot of the time, too. Is that you know you, you you pitch like 20 ideas, and then three of them will end up in the finished product, and one of them has been changed substantially. And so, um, and if if it's well you know, um, compiled as it always is with Smigel, then it se- seems seamless and it, it ends up getting very hard to remember what's yours and what isn't. And it also airs what, four or five months later? Yeah, it, it airs much later. And what year was that? Do you have that in front of you? 2012. Yeah, it was 10 years ago. And there's a lot of water under the bridge since then. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember a lot. But uh yeah, I'm much better with Bob's Burgers jokes. I can tell you which ones I wrote and didn't write, but um, not so much the SNL cartoons. Does Bob Burgers, um, do they tape where everyone's in the same room or do, do the cast have like home studios before COVID? Before COVID, everyone t- uh, recorded in the same room or separate two separate studios because some people are on the East Coast, some in the West, but it was an ensemble type record and that's we got a lot of like improv out of that and um yeah then covid everyone uh, retreated to their closets and uh, 
we recorded that way and got pretty good at it, but we're back doing ensemble records again. Is it weird watching, I don't know what Larry Murphy sound, looks like or sounds like when he talks normally, but is it weird having him do the, do the Teddy voice? Because that's like the weirdest voice, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's just kind of in the back of his throat and uh, he does it uh, so naturally that the weird one for me is John Roberts, who it t- sort of turns into a Muppet when he does Linda. He, his whole physicality kind of changes. Um, the And the least weird one is just Bob because it's so, it's not, it's not John Benjamin, but it's not so far from him. Um, and yeah, Teddy, the thing with Teddy too, is that he was always an East coast. Uh, Larry's always an East coast guy. So, uh, and we're on the West coast. So I never, I rarely got to watch him do it because they have like um, an audio uh, uplink. So I'm just hearing the voice too. But uh, you know, he doesn't look that drastically different from Teddy. So <laughs> it might, it might not be as weird as, uh, as we're imagining. It, it always sounds like he's got like some food in the back of his throat. Yeah. 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 It's, it's just kind of one of these things. Yeah. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and it's supposed to be New Jersey, right? Yeah, they're they're in New Jersey. I mean, yeah, not since the like the second time. or third season have they mentioned it. But I think I think it's been yeah, it was mentioned or there was a, a map once um, when you saw the car, the family car going from Jersey down to Florida. But um, I think that's as close as we've come. I don't remember ever explicitly saying New Jersey. It's kind of based on uh, Cape May, which is a little seaside town in Jersey with a lot of beautiful Victorian houses. And uh, that combined with San Francisco, where Lauren and Nora were living when they started development of Bob's. And uh, yeah, between those two towns, I think you get Seymour's Bay, which is the, the, the usually unspoken name of their town. And Seymour's Bay is named for, we had a, 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 an editor named C, Mark Seymour, and his office was called a bay. So we would always, you know, go to Seymour's Bay for, um, to watch down like a, a color of one of our episodes. And yeah, it was just a little inside joke. You talked about working with Robert Smigel. What's he like? Yeah, that's the thing about Robert is that he's, there's no dickishness and he's, he genuinely loves comedy and loves writing it and it, you know is a real fan as well as being like a brilliant you know a brilliant one of the most influential writers and so yeah i yeah he, he he's the sort of guy who a fan could go up to and uh, he's always going to be warm and, and leave you feeling good do you think that streaming has made more comedy nerd you know now everything is kind of easy to stream and i like to think at least that there are a lot more comedy nerds out there oh i know i'm a a big comedy nerd and uh, i'm not ashamed to say that oh Oh, so am i yeah no shame i have i have i showed you were at the daily show when buck henry was there did you ever get a chance to meet him i brought him into the daily show yeah um i had this idea that i wanted for a senior senior correspondent to talk about uh, uh issues for the elderly but really, it was an excuse to get. I wanted to get Bob Elliott, who was Chris Elliott's father, and um, I'm a huge fan of Bob and Ray, and and of Chris Elliott. And so I 
got in touch with Chris and he gave me um, his dad's address and just said, write him a letter. So I wrote him and he wrote me back very nicely. He just said he's retired and that he doesn't think he could do, he could do it. And so we, John liked the idea enough to brainstorm other possible people. And we decided Buck Henry. And so Buck came to the show and I, I worked with him for a day and it was really exciting. And yeah, he just tosses off, you know, stories about his legendary past like they're nothing like just you'll toss off a story about mike nichols and then pivot to like well I, you know i've got to go pee <laughs> so it was it was like a really great day i'll never forget it have you read any of mike Sachs's uh, well, interviews I, that's who i knew that's how i knew who he was when yeah, okay. I, when i was off I, I read both of those books before i ever knew i was going to ever talk to him or meet him yeah mike um he doesn't want to do those anymore because I think he really throws himself into the interviews, into the research, and it's a lot, you know. But uh, and he likes he's he's a writer himself, as you know, so he yeah. he'd rather focus on that. But I'm a little disappointed. I he's he's so good at it, you know. He he's said, got right. such good taste for who he tracks down. That's true. He also said that you know he'd have to listen to every podcast this guest was now because before that when he did the first two they weren't on podcasts they weren't on you know wtf with mark maron because then he'd have to listen to more there's more stuff that he did have to consume in order to do his interviews yeah definitely yeah i know <laughs> if you're if you're someone like mike and, you, and you're really like you know you're you're being obsessively you know an obsessive perfectionist which he is i i would t- just take a lot sloppier of an approach and, <laughs> and not listen to every podcast I, I would read some Wikipedia and uh, <laughs> just go in there like a fan. All right, Scott. So you got picked up for the twelfth season, thirteenth uh, and fourteenth, I think. Oh, thirteenth. That's that's good. And you're gonna write your two episodes per season. Yeah, I'm starting. The starting. The, I'm gonna pitch an episode next week, and uh, I've got two that are sort of in different stages of production now. So yeah, things keep moving on there. That's great. It's good. I think the episodes are going to get only uh, more interesting for this new season because we're going to try a few new things. And for my daughter's 10th birthday, I took her to Bob Berger, the movie. Oh, great. I hope you guys liked it. Oh, we, we, we liked it. Oh, that's fantastic. And so thank you very much for doing this. Well, it was my pleasure. And, uh, you know, I'll reach out to uh, Smigel for you. Oh, thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks. Bye, Ian. Thanks Bye. a lot.